One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your sons asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a, a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, I ask, teach us about prayer today and teach us to pray. In your name, amen. A man went and bought a saxophone. And he brought it home and showed it to his wife. And she asked him, what are you going to do with that? And he said, you'll see. And he took it out to his garage where he kept the other love of his life, his classic car that he was always working on. And he put the saxophone down and he opened the case up and he took it out and he put the neck on it and then he put the mouthpiece on it, got it all ready, and then went over to his car and kneeled down on the ground and started to try and kind of get the saxophone under the car, the bell part, that opening the mouth, try to get that under the car and... and for, for like half an hour, he kept working on it, trying to get it under the car because he was going to try and lift the car with it. And, you know, after 20, 30 minutes of doing that, and he's just scratching it up and it won't fit, he just says, ah, whatever, this thing is useless. It doesn't work. And he throws it back in the case, kicks it into the corner of the garage and goes storming into the house, cursing under his breath. Ah, stupid thing, waste of money, waste of my time. And his wife like, what's wrong? He's like, ah, it doesn't work. The stupid thing doesn't work. That's a lot of the way we often treat prayer. We want it to do something that we really want it to do. And we go at it trying to get something that's really important to us. And then we don't get that thing and we say prayer doesn't work. A lot of people have prayed for things they wanted and didn't get what they wanted. And so they decided, they concluded prayer doesn't work and they've just tossed it in the back of their closet and forgotten about prayer. You know, they'll do it maybe at meals, but in their minds it doesn't work. A few days later, our friend, our guy, was underneath his car working on it, and he heard footsteps walking up his driveway because neighbors always want to see when someone's working, they like to watch. So his neighbor was walking up, and he's like, hey, what you doing under the car? And he's like, oh, I'm trying to fix it, you know. And he says, oh my goodness, is that a saxophone? And he's like, yeah, this stupid thing doesn't work. I couldn't even get it under the car. He's like, you couldn't what? And so, well, let me look at it. I've been playing saxophone since I was a kid. So I was like, ah, knock yourself out. He didn't even bother to get out from under the car having the whole conversation. And so his friend, his neighbor, goes over to the saxophone, plays with it a minute. He's like, what did you do with this thing? It's scratched up. And so let me see what I can do. And then suddenly the garage started filling with beautiful sounds. 
And the guy almost banged his head from under the car. What is that? And kind of wiggled himself out from under the car and just stared at his neighbor playing the saxophone, making all this beautiful music and, and just looked at him and said, what in the world are you doing? Like, and he said, well, that's what a saxophone is for. That's what it's supposed to do. And we do the same thing with prayer. We treat it like a lifeless tool when it is meant to be a living instrument. We don't desire prayer because we don't think prayer works. And we don't think prayer works because we don't understand what prayer is for and what it is that it does. But just imagine for a moment, just imagine before we dig into this passage this morning, that you were able to play the saxophone, that you were like amazing at it. And that at any given time, you could walk up to a group of other people who are playing music and you could take out the saxophone and join in with that music and play and play beautifully. It didn't matter where you were or when it was. You could just pick it up and you could play. Just imagine being able to do that. And imagine being able to pray in a way where you could walk up to any other group of people, any place, any time, and join in the music that God is making in this world, the music of salvation, the music of new creation, and you could just join in that music and, and experience something amazing in prayer together with those people. Imagine having that kind of prayer ability. That's what we want. The kind of prayer ability that it, where it doesn't matter if you're in a concert hall or gathered in a church sanctuary, or even in your garage or any place else, you can pick up that instrument and you can see it come to life and work and do what it's made to do. We struggle with prayer. I know you do. As your pastor, I know you do. I know there are many times I do as well. There are many times when we see prayer as doing nothing but just asking God for stuff. And for many of us, you do it because you know you ought to do it, but you don't expect much out of it. Others of you are frustrated because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And others of you have just given up or never really tried because it just doesn't make sense and feels awkward. And again, I think that's because we don't understand what prayer is and what it's for. And that's what Jesus is talking to us about here today. That's what this whole moment in Luke's gospel is there to teach us. Jesus wanted his disciples to know and he wants us to know what prayer is for and what it works to do. So let's dig in and let's look at this. You can follow along in our app. If you've got our app, you can take notes or you can follow on the screen. But go right back to verse one. This is where prayer starts. It has to start here. Prayer begins with a desire. In verse one, the disciples are watching Jesus pray. And when he's done, one of them says, Jesus, teach us how to pray. We want to know how to pray too. Prayer starts with a desire. But here's where we get off track right away many times because for many people, and you're going to have to listen to this next sentence because it, it can be very confusing. I'll say it a couple times. But for many people, prayer is a thing we do to get God to give us things we desire more than we desire God. I'll say it again. For many of us, many times, prayer is a thing we do to get God to give us things that we desire more than we desire God. I pray for the job I want, the relationship I want, the finances I want, the help I want. And the truth is that all those things are things I want more than I want God. I only want God if he can get me those things. And that kind of prayer is just using God like a tool to get the things that we want more than we actually want him. And that is not how prayer works. It never is. Prayer begins with a desire, a desire for God. To desire God is to pray. 
The story we read this morning from Luke begins with the disciples watching Jesus pray. And then one of them speaks up and says, teach us to pray. So what was their desire there? What is it they wanted? What was on their hearts? What was their desire in that moment? Now keep in mind, these are the same disciples, if you go back and read the context of what's going on, these are the same disciples who just got back from a mission trip. Jesus had sent them out. And they had gone into all kinds of different towns and they had been praying over people and seeing them healed from physical sickness, seeing them delivered from evil spirits. So, you know, if you and I were to meet somebody who had just been on a trip where they had been praying for people and seeing them healed and delivered from evil spirits, you and I would assume this person knows how to pray, Right? And yet here they are noticing there's something different in the way Jesus is praying and they want this, what they see here with Jesus. There was something different. This wasn't a prayer for miraculous intervention. These were unique moments they were watching in the way Jesus was praying. They were watching the kind of praying that I'd call it glue prayer or fuel prayer. This is the prayer that glue Jesus to the will of the Father. This is the prayer that fueled Jesus to do the Father's will. Even in the moments where he was accused of being, he's just about in the next story over, he's gonna get accused of being the devil because he's setting people free from evil spirits. The story just before, he's got a bunch of lawyers trying to trip him up and make him say something stupid. So this was the praying, the glue prayer, the fuel prayer that Jesus leaned on constantly. And when you read the Gospels that talk about Jesus, you see him constantly getting away to pray. This was the kind of prayer that kept him and empowered him through those moments, through the temptations, through these times where he needed to be strong. And as they watched Jesus pray there in that moment, they recognized there's something vital and life-giving in this prayer, and we want it. We want to be part of it. And prayer begins with that desire for an intimate connection with God. It begins with a desire for God. And prayer is the place where every other desire bows to God and surrenders to him and gives way to him. And if it doesn't, if that's not the case, then that means you and I are using prayer as a tool to get things from God that we just want more than we want him, which means he's not our priority. He's just a tool to us when what prayer should be is an instrument. And that's what we're after today. Prayer begins with a desire a desire to be close to God, to join in the music of salvation and restoration and forgiveness and righteousness and new creation. That's the desire that has to fuel and begin our prayer. That's where it starts. So Jesus agrees. He says, okay, I'm gonna show you how to pray. And the prayer he teaches them isn't just something that you and I can go and recite 20 times and then it makes everything better. That's not what it's intended to do. He gives them a three-legged stool is what he gives them. He gives them a template for prayer. And it's got three different parts to it that hold it together. And so let's look at those parts. This is what a vibrant prayer life looks like. Number one is this. The first leg of that stool is relationship with the Father. Just look at the first two words of the prayer Jesus taught them to say. Father, hallowed. Father, hallowed be your name. So right away, that first word, Father, which you and I take for granted because of we're 2,000 years later. But if you had grown up, and if your whole history was the Old Testament, you would know that very rarely did anyone call God Father. Whenever God's referred to as Father in the Old Testament, it's about the whole nation. It's not this necessarily intimate thing. It's just, yeah, he fathered us. 
And here's Jesus introducing a whole new way of relating to God, a whole new picture in your mind for when you pray to picture Father, someone who loves you and cares about you. And what this says, contrary to what so many other beliefs out there would say about whatever power is in the universe, it says that God is not some disconnected, ethereal, soulless force in the universe that you're trying to connect with. He is Father. And God is not some angry, grumpy person you have to grovel and appease because he's an angry overlord just trying to rub us under his thumb. When you pray, the first image that should come into your mind, in my mind, is this intimate one of a father who already knows your needs and cares about you, who desires what's best for you. Picture a child running to her dad when she's scared of something and finding comfort and security in his arms. Picture a little boy looking up at his dad as he's learning how to use a hammer for affirmation. And yet, is this right? Am I getting it right? Picture that kind of intimacy. I know we've got all different relationships with our fathers here. And and our earthly fathers are not perfect. But picture those moments. Because that's the mental picture Jesus gives you and I to begin praying with. God is our father. But then immediately it follows with that word hollowed, which I don't know how often. Here's a challenge for the week. Work the word hollowed into a conversation and see what happens Simply what it means is set apart. And what we're saying is, Father, your name, your character, you are set apart in my life. There is no one like you. There is no one I bow to. There is no one I serve. There is no one who takes the place you take in my life because you are hollowed. You are set apart above everyone else. You are holy and different and sacred than anything else in my life, than anyone else in my life. You stand at the top. No one is even close to you. I honor you above everyone else. And that right there is the foundation of prayer. We pray for this kind of relationship, this intimate, loving, tender relationship where we're also at the same time acknowledging God and giving him the honor he is due as our perfect father. And so there are two ways then you and I can go wrong in our praying. First, we can treat God like he's, as though he's something other than this loving father who cares deeply about us. We can treat him as this disconnected force. We can worry about, is God even gonna hear me? Or if I don't pray right, is God gonna you know, get me? Or is he gonna like, answer my prayer in some weird way to get me? Is God looking to, to like, <laughs> you asked for, you know, to be rich and now I just made you rich with, I don't know, something stupid, chocolate. And now go try and sell all that and be rich. God's not trying to find twists and turns to mess with us. And sometimes when we approach God, we think, oh, I've got to like say the right words. As opposed to a father who even with a little kid who can barely even express themselves, dad's like, I know what they want. I know what they're after. That's how we approach him. And we can get that wrong. If we go to God any other way with any other picture, then we get it wrong. But we can also go wrong the other way. We can get over familiar with God. We can treat him without that respect, without the honor due the one who stands above everything else and deserves our highest praise. And I know these are only two words, right? We've just gotten through the first two words of the prayer, but they set the whole first leg, which is God as Father and God as Holy set apart. And getting our relationship with God right is the very beginning of prayer. It's the first leg of prayer. Get that relationship with God right. If there's something twisted in it, if there's something wrong in it, we need to get it right. And then after we've done that, the next part of the prayer, the next leg of the prayer makes more sense. He says, your kingdom come. So the second part of prayer is what we have hanging on our wall. We say prayer is how we align ourselves with God. That's what it's about. 
What do, what do you picture? Just in your imagination, when you pray, your kingdom come, what picture pops into your mind? Are you picturing castles? Are you picturing clouds and pearly gates and angels floating on clouds? And what do you picture in your mind when you say, your kingdom come? Because sometimes I think we say it and we don't get a real picture of what it is that we're saying in that moment. What we're saying in that moment is, every other kingdom in this world is horrible in one way or another, is corrupt in one way or another, or in many different ways. There is constant injustice, abuse, immorality, lying, fraud, manipulation in every kingdom of this world. They are all corrupted by our sin. And anyone who tells you, no, 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 our kingdom, our group here, our party here, we're not corrupted. We're the righteous ones. We're the good ones. Anybody who tells you that is lying or they've been tricked by the manipulation and the smoke show. Human sin corrupts everything, every kingdom of this world. So when we're praying your kingdom come, what we're praying for is the perfect justice and rule and righteousness of God's kingdom to come and replace all these other kingdoms in this world and, and shine above all these other kingdoms in this world that, that we live in and we live among because we recognize that all these other kingdoms are broken and bankrupt and only God's kingdom is perfect and pure. And what we're also saying in that is that we want to align ourselves with God's kingdoms, values, and character. So we're not praying for God to come and make the particular earthly kingdom that we like the most win over all the other kingdoms. That's not our prayer. We're praying for God to replace every single one of these kingdoms with his kingdom, for his kingdom to come and rule over all of them. And instead of trying to align ourselves with any of these kingdoms of our world, and yes, to be clear, I'm talking about trying to align ourselves with Democrats or Republicans or name any other group around our world. Instead of trying to align ourselves with these groups, these kingdoms, these parties, and their agendas, what we need to be praying is for God's kingdom to come and replace all of it. Because we need to recognize all of it is corrupt. All of it is broken by human sin and twisted. And what we're trying to do is align with God. And even when you find fleeting overlaps between these earthly kingdoms and God's kingdom, remember they are only fleeting overlaps. They are going to quickly disappear. They are not real partnerships with God's kingdom. So be careful about aligning with any of these other so-called kingdoms in this world because what happens is we begin to align with them and our allegiance to God begins to suffer. We begin to not see clearly from God's kingdom perspective anymore. We begin to just get caught up in the other lines of whatever kingdom we're part of and we lose the ability to see clearly in this world. And so what prayer does is it says, I'm eager to align with God and his kingdom and no other kingdom. Ultimately, they're all bankrupt and tainted by sin. And I'm not gonna settle for any earthly kingdom or be taken in by areas where maybe there's some agreement. I'm gonna see clearly and pray to align with God's kingdom so that I can be a voice to all the different kingdoms of this world where they are, have lost God and not hearing God. That's our goal. That's the second leg of prayer, aligning ourselves with God's kingdom and his agenda. Third leg then. Prayer begins with what? The desire for God. 
the desire to be connected to God and empowered by God, then it starts with this affirming this relationship with God as Father who is sacred and holy and unlike anybody else. It starts there. It moves into saying, God, align me with your kingdom and your values. I want to live for that. And then it moves into praying for God's family. And that's where you know, the verses that you've probably skipped over millions of times and said millions of times, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Well, first of all, why include this in this prayer? Why, why include this in the prayer stool? If this prayer is about gluing ourselves to God and being fueled by God for his mission in the world, then why are we taking a whole section of it to talk about people? It's about, I want to be connected to God. And the reason is because God's whole mission, God's whole kingdom agenda is people, is humanity, is building his family so that his family can be a beacon, an orchestra playing beautiful music in this world. Because relationship with God isn't meant to be only for a special few people. It's meant to be everyone. Remember how this started. Because so many times we treat the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us like a thing that we should take to our devotional closet and just, I pray the Lord's Prayer. I pray the Lord's Prayer. But where did this begin? A group of disciples around Jesus wanting to know how can we pray Jesus? How can we pray so that we stay connected with you and with each other? It is meant from the very beginning to be community, to be a, pray, a prayer that we pray together not something that we just stand around on the side watching. And that's why that language there that we highlighted on the slide, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation. It's meant to be prayed together. And then what are the parts? So there's three parts in this last section here, this last stool. There's one, praying for daily bread, our practical needs. And two, praying forgiveness for those who sin against us. That's the horizontal, our relationship needs. And then there's prayer, God, don't even let us get tempted to sin. Help us escape from sin. So that's this, deliver us spiritually, Lord, from violating our relationship with you. And we pray for each other, for our brothers and sisters for these things. We pray together for these things. We pray for our brothers and sisters to be rescued, not just from sin, but even from the temptation to, be, to sin. How often are you praying together with brothers and sisters? For God to protect them from temptation. That's got to be a major part of our praying. And not just that, but we also pray for forgiveness between each other. Forgiveness that holds us together. And not just that, but we also go on and we pray for our, just our basic needs. The food you need to live today. And have energy today. Like it's all covered here in what Jesus taught us. And while all of these things that would be, they'd be perfectly fine for you to pray alone in your prayer devotional times, they are meant to be a lesson for how we should pray together for one another. Something powerful happens when you pray with a brother or sister for their needs. Something powerful happens between us when we pray for forgiveness together. But then notice something else about that forgiveness. If if you don't picture this as you praying alone in a closet, but a prayer we're praying together, and now we together say, you know what, let's just say it together. Uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Let's say that. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Do you see how that meaning changes now? Now this is us, the group of disciples, the followers of Jesus, praying 
God, forgive us the same way we forgive everyone who sins against us as your followers, as your people. It just changes and tweaks it a little bit. We need the forgiveness amongst each other, but we also need to be the kind of people Jesus taught us to be the kind of people who together pray for those who might persecute us, pray for those who might come against us, those who might do things to harm us, those who might try to take away our rights. Jesus taught us to pray for those who would do things to us that make it harder for us to follow him. He taught us to, pray, to forgive them the same way he's forgiven us, not to abandon Jesus' principles, not to abandon Jesus' character and say, you know what? We gotta fight fire with fire because otherwise we're not gonna win. But instead, to say, no, I'm gonna follow Jesus' character and Jesus taught us to forgive and pray for those who sin against us. Imagine if, because I think the church has really struggled with this in our country lately. Imagine if we did what Jesus said, behaved the way Jesus showed us to behave, prayed the way Jesus taught us to pray, forgave the way he taught us to forgive. Imagine what a difference we would make in this world by being like Jesus and not like everybody else. And that's a key part of the leg he's taught us. So we pray for each other's daily needs. We pray for ongoing forgiveness between us, but also for all the world around us and what they might do us. And we pray to be kept away from temptation to sin, much less sin. Build a wall around my brothers and sisters, God, and guard their hearts. This is what prayer is for. This is what this, the central prayer, they're praying for miracles, there's praying for healing, there's praying for all those other things. But the center of prayer, as Jesus taught it, to those who want to follow him, what it's for, what it's supposed to do, is build relationship with God, align us with his agenda, and cement us together as a family, praying together for each other's needs, for forgiveness, and then for protection spiritually. That's what prayer is for. And that prayer works. That prayer works. It builds your relationship with God. It aligns you with his kingdom. It connects us and glues us to one another. That is what prayer is for. And prayer works. Whenever someone says prayer works, don't think, oh yeah, prayer works. I prayed for a Mercedes and guess what's in my driveway today? No, prayer doesn't, that prayer doesn't work. Prayer doesn't give you the things you want more than God. Prayer works to do what Jesus said it would do. And when it does, it is beautiful and it is amazing. And that means that you now, as you go through your daily life, you have brothers and sisters you can call or you can Zoom or FaceTime or whatever and you can take five minutes and just let's pray for each other. What do you need today? What are you, where are you being tempted today? Where do we need some forgiveness today? And you can together pray. And in that moment, discover, you'll just hear the music playing. You'll hear God's kingdom music playing because you're all aligning around what God wants to do. And, it's, and there are things he wants to do in you at work and wherever you are. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to be in a concert hall to play the prayer. It can be anywhere. Any moment you can connect with each other and with God and then be, can begin to be part of that music that plays the song of salvation wherever you go. And it'll change your perspective. It'll change your goals and your priorities and it'll give you strength. Because in the end, and this is where Jesus wraps up, and worship team, you can come back as I'm just going through this last part. You don't have to rush, take your time. But Jesus then tells us, here's where prayer's answer is. 
So he showed us where prayer starts with that desire. He showed us what the legs of prayer are. But then look at the answer to prayer. He talks, tells a story, a parable, about a guy who's got a friend shows up at night and he doesn't have any food to feed his friend. So he goes banging on his neighbor's door and his neighbor's like, I'm in bed, go away. And he, just, he, he doesn't want to come and give the food and give him any bread. But he says, because you, you know, bang and you harass the guy, he'll finally give in and come. God's point is not that, oh, if you harass me enough, I'll give you what you want. His point is if that jerk of a neighbor who didn't want to get out of bed until you really annoyed him enough, if he'll even get up and give you bread, how much more our gracious and loving God, who is your father, who knows what you need, who will give you what you need for your friends and the people around you. God's not a sleepy, cranky neighbor. And then he drives it home with another example. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for fish, you'll give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, you'll give him a scorpion. What kind of a jerk father, sadistic father would do that? And the point is, God is not sadistic. The food we need for ourselves to sustain us, he is ready and willing to give us. But then there's a twist at the end. There's a twist at the end here to remind us one more time what we really need, even more than food, even more than the life that foods allows us to have. What we need is what ultimately Jesus says God gives us. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give you what? The food? No. The Holy Spirit. Because what we ultimately need and the point of this whole, all this praying is the one who makes this possible that we be connected to God. That we be aligned with God. That we be held together. It's the Holy Spirit. Read through the New Testament everywhere you turn. It's God the Holy Spirit holding us joined together with one another, enabling us to experience unity in a world that is torn apart. It's the Holy Spirit who allows us to feel God's presence and power in our lives and among us. It's the Holy Spirit. And so when we pray, what God ultimately is going to do is give us his Holy Spirit to maintain that relationship with him, to maintain that agenda and so that we can love and care for each other's physical, relational, and spiritual needs. That's what God will do. That's what prayer is for. And prayer works.